Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today in the book of Hebrews called The Priceless Treasure of Jesus with a message titled, Jesus the Man. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Every once in a while, I'll hear that well-worn phrase, you know, Christianity, and for that matter, all religion, well, it's just a crutch for people who can't face life on their own. And to answer quite frankly, I'm happy to admit that, but I think of how silly it is to think that such a statement is a criticism. I imagine someone saying the same thing to the man or woman who gets a yearly physical at the doctor, or think of the same thing about someone who attends a university or a trade school or a technical institute. Well, just a crutch for people who can't make, you know, life on their own. Well, truth be told, none of us can make it through life on our own. Call it a crutch, or call it training, call it help, call it anything you will. But we must take a hold of that which is offered. Only a fool thinks they don't need help. Now, nowhere do we need more help than when it comes to our death. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a man in his 70s. He told me that great breakthroughs were being made in the extension of human life. He told me that we were on the cusp of extending life by about 60 years, that these breakthroughs would soon be here. He said it in a way that made me think he was hanging on to that as his hope. Now, whether or not that's true, I make no comment. But if it were true, I'm sure that new problems for the care of the aged would present themselves and how to deal with a much larger population and the anger between the haves and the have-nots, that would lead to war. But still, whether we live 80 or 140, death would still enclose its merciless fingers around us in the end. We will succumb. Moses said we end our years with a sigh, and although there's much bravado about death being said in our day, in the end, it all fades before the grave. You know, if you're an atheist, death presents you with extinguishment, with the end of all meaning, the end of all accomplishment, the end of you. In short order, you're gone. You don't matter. You are eternally and never-endingly forgotten. The mere thought of that, it should be an outrage. Untold ages happen before your existence and a brief window of your existence and then following eternal ages when you don't exist again. Death mocks any meaning in this short and insignificant life. Whether you lived well or poorly doesn't matter. Solomon said, an alive dog is better off than a dead lion. Indeed, death makes all of us lions or dogs as if it doesn't matter. But most people believe in some sort of existence after death. That is, they think they're going to survive their own death. But as to what that means varies greatly. Heaven, maybe. Reincarnation based upon, you know, collected karma or the lack thereof. Yeah. Judgment. The options are out there. And yet, whatever your belief systems are, death is the great wall, the great impenetrable shadow. We can't interview the dead and ask them whether their beliefs about it were true whether their plans of securing the good afterlife paid off. Death will allow no such investigations. The only way that we can get at it is to ask the man who came from heaven, Jesus himself. But let's not get away from death. There's a fear of death and the act of dying. You know, some people die in pain and some people die having lost the ability to rationally appreciate what's happening to them. Some die blessing, some die cursing. But in short order, the blessing and the cursing both die. Then the body decays and we're no more. And I'm not saying something new or unheard of when I say that surely we need help when it comes to death. 
And so when we come to the last section of Hebrews chapter 2, here I'm reading verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, let's divide our text into four sections, and all four sections are going to speak about what Jesus did to help us. So let's look at the first section, verse 14. Jesus shared with us in flesh and blood. Now, we've noticed that in the first chapter of Hebrews, we are told about the eternal deity of Jesus. And in truth, the questions of his deity consumed the early church and continued to do so for about four centuries. Most of the heresies that threatened the undoing of the church were heresies that denied his divine nature. In the late 200s, early 300s, a very famous bishop of Constantinople, he was a man named Arius, and he denied Jesus' eternal nature. He taught that Jesus was created by God, and his teaching might have destroyed the church were it not for the Council of Nicaea and the courageous and insightful biblical work done by a man named Athanasius. See, to the most part, with a few exceptions, Arianism has been defeated today. A mark of the one true church is that it affirms the eternal deity of the Son. But there's another heresy. And it also threatened to overwhelm the early church. It was the heresy that denied his human nature. We get that in the Bible itself, 2 John verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, writes John, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. And so the struggle to affirm the full humanity of Christ has been just as great as the struggle to affirm his deity. Look again at Hebrews 2:14 verse A. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Go ahead to Hebrews 2:17A. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He was fully human in every respect, in every way. As man, he had to learn, to grow, to feel pain, to experience and struggle with temptation the way we do, to find strength in God even as we do. I mean, don't read the account of Jesus being tempted by the devil as if it were merely a stage play put on for a show. Rather, see it as you would experience it. Know that as you have struggled, so also your Savior has struggled. I mean, the only difference between you and him is that he never yielded to sin, and you have. But the struggle, precisely the same. So let's be clear. Jesus was born as a baby the way we were. He had to learn to walk and talk, to be toilet trained as we are. The Bible says he increased in wisdom as we do by learning concepts, internalizing them, memorizing them. He became weary. He became thirsty. He became hungry. When he died, he experienced death as a human being at one time. You know, it said that he was heard because of his loud cries and tears. I mean, that's how he overcame. So we confess this so that we wouldn't think of Jesus other than what he truly was. He felt criticism the way we do. 
He knew the same struggle to get out of bed in the morning the way you do. He knew what it was to be tired, to have a pounding headache, to feel pain, to feel pressure. He was like you in every respect, of course, with the exception that he, that he didn't yield into sin, but he partook fully of your humanity. And what's the purpose of all of that? Well, we could speak about this being necessary in order to be our Redeemer, but I'll hold that discussion for later. But for now, in the second section of our passage, we learn one of the reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to share fully in our humanity, and that reason is found in verses 14 and 15. Let's read them. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus had to become fully human, says our passage, for three reasons. First, he had to die. A God doesn't die. People do. It really was possible for sinful human beings to nail Jesus to the cross, to cruelly put him to death. Were he only God, that wouldn't have been possible. But if he is truly human, those things can be done to him. Second, he became man so that through his death, he would destroy the one who has the power of death. And the key word here is the word to destroy. The word can mean to cause to cease to exist, but that can't be what the writer has in mind because clearly Satan didn't cease to exist. But the word can be translated as to put to an end. On the cross and by his death, Jesus overthrew and put to an end Satan's dominion over the human race. Jesus' death destroyed Satan's curse on us. Now, we do know that when Adam sinned, death came as a result of his sin. But we also know that were it not for the deception of Satan, Adam would not have sinned. And so we can say that Satan really is the author of death in the human race. He is, as Jesus described him, a murderer from the beginning. He seeks the death of everyone. And so the first thing that Jesus did in his death is that he broke the dominion of Satan over the human race. Jesus died in obedience to the Father. Jesus died and paid for our sin. And Jesus took our sins upon himself. And therefore, the dominion of Satan is broken. Satan's power over the human race, sin and death, has now been taken away. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's Word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership. We've had one verb in our passage, that's the verb to destroy. Now comes a second one, it's the verb to deliver. 
See, it's one thing to break Satan's power over human beings. It's quite another to deliver them from Satan's bondage. So think about Israel and slavery in Egypt. Yeah, God decimated the Egyptians by the use of 10 plagues. He destroyed their power to hold Israel in slavery. But years later, they were still talking about the good things in Egypt. And many times they just wanted to go back there. They said it wasn't so bad after all. I remember while doing undergraduate work in the University of Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, I was reading of an experiment that had been done on a dog. And I guess in past days, I mean, we had fewer rules regarding animal experiments. And and this dog was kept in a cage from which he couldn't escape. And then the floor of the cage would be electrified with jolts. The dog would yelp in pain, try to escape, but it was all to no avail. But then after this had been repeated for some time, the top of the cage was lifted and the dog could have leapt free. But he had learned helplessness. Jolts of electricity were applied, and instead of escaping, he just continued to remain in place. I say again, it's one thing to destroy the devil's power over it. It's quite another thing to deliver us from that power. And what is the devil's power that binds the human race? Our text says it's the fear of death. William Lane said, Hopeless subjection to death characterizes earthly existence apart from intervention by God. Moreover, the presence of death makes itself felt in the experience of anxiety. People dealing with their anxiety over death seek to compensate. There are those who counsel, just welcome death, they say. Then there are those, especially in our day, who counsel suicide. They say you can go on your own terms. Others seek to fill their lives with things like entertainment or forms of distraction just to keep themselves from thinking about death. I've met, and you probably have as well, people who are in their later years, they tell me they never think of death. Now, that's remarkable, but I I think they do. But I think they're terrified to dwell on it because it paralyzes them. And so they expend any amount of energy just to suppress that which gnaws at their souls. Now look, death reminds us that we need to be saved, not from unhappiness, not from problems in living, not from financial problems, and not from purposelessness. We need to be saved from death. It's death because of our sins that haunts every human being, and it's the surety of the judgment that is to come. Now, of course, all men and women, whether Christian or non-Christian, they die. And so on one hand, it might appear as if Satan still rules ultimately. However, and this is the key, the curse of death no longer hangs over the followers of Jesus. Jesus, through his death, has borne the curse for us. Now the curse of death is removed. Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death. Furthermore, since our lives are now united with his life, we know that we're united with him in his death, and so also we're united in his resurrection. God's not angry with us, with those who are in Christ. For Christ has borne the anger of God on our behalf. How shall we fear death when Jesus has borne the curse and has risen from the dead? Although the actual experience of death, while that can still frighten us, the consequence of sin, the judgment of falling short of God's requirements and coming under divine judgments, those real threats have been removed in Christ. They're just gone. All that awaits for us is eternal life. All that awaits for us is the smile of the Father. Our Savior has suffered death on our behalf, and so as is his future, so is ours. For this reason, we love Jesus' words in Revelation 1, 17 to 18. 
He said, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Yeah, the keys of death are no longer held by our ancient enemy. They are held by our older brother who lived and died for us. And that's one of the reasons I've heard a frequent testimony from medical professionals. A person in Christ will often die faster than an unbeliever. The unbeliever will struggle against the death. The believer will not fear. Death is now held by Jesus, and he is to be cherished, not dreaded. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus views the day of our death as not the just retribution for our sins, but the precious moment in which he welcomes us into eternal arms. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he lay dying, penned a note for his family. Don't pray for my healing, said the note. Don't hold me back from the glory. Are you afraid of death, child of God? Do not fear that which your Savior has prepared for you to deliver you into his eternal and loving arms. Oh, my. And I said there are four sections in this passage. The first is the affirmation that Jesus, the eternal Son, became fully man and partook fully in our nature and experience. The second is that he did so in order to destroy the one who has the power of death. Now the third section. He became fully man, not only to free us from the fear of death, but also to be our faithful high priest. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As many of you know, this theme, that Jesus is our great high priest. That dominates a great many chapters in this book of Hebrews. But here's a preface to this thought. We learn that Jesus did not come to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Well, the writer isn't referring to the Jewish people here. He's referring to all who put their hope in Jesus, and because of that, they are the children of Abraham. But leaving that aside, we are the people of Jesus. Jesus stands ready, says our text, to help us. Well, we've already seen that he helps us with a fear of death, but he also helps us in this section with the problem of our sinfulness. And he does so by being our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, this is the first time in this book where Jesus is referred to as our high priest. So let's understand the term now. In the Old Testament, there are a number of things that priests did, but there are only few things that were reserved specifically for the high priest. And the most important of all those duties were the functions of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. On that one day of the year, the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies. That was the inner room of the temple, and it housed the Ark of the Covenant. That was the piece of furniture that represented the very presence of God. We're going to say a great deal more of that in the future. But on that day, there was a goat that was slaughtered, and then the blood of that goat were sprinkled before the presence of God. See, in that way, the high priest represents the sinner before God, and he offers up atonement for sins. Notice then the title that is given for Jesus, the merciful high priest. He comes as our representative before God, and he has a sacrifice to bring, and that sacrifice cleanses us from all sins and makes us acceptable to God. In Hebrews, Jesus is pictured both as the sacrificial lamb, that is the offering that is presented, but also as the high priest, the one who brings the offering. And that's the point here. He's made atonement for us. 
He's assuaged the wrath of God. Hebrews says he could only play that role as a man. Listen to what Anselm, the the famous Christian from the 12th century, said. He said, the high priesthood of Jesus could not have been done unless, as man, he paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both man and God. Well said. But the writer of Hebrews is focusing on Jesus' humanity here. The high priest, he says, must be a faithful man. Who else could offer up a sin offering for us? Jesus is that faithful man. Now then, one more point needs to be made. Jesus fully man, and as man, he removes the fear of death. As man, he removes the punishment for our sins. Then finally, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I think that Jesus doesn't understand how torturous it is for you to remain faithful to God. Jesus knows your struggle. He knows that when you're being tempted, he knows that when pressure is on you, that you have a tendency to turn from him and to turn towards sin. Jesus knows your lack of faith. And he also knows that you have difficulty in believing that your sins are fully forgiven. He also knows that you're afraid of death. He knows you struggle to believe, and he knows that because he is man, he is able to help you. Oh my, we do need help. We do need a crutch. We do need someone who will guide us through this life and deliver us safely into the arms of our Heavenly Father. And here's the good news. We have just such a Savior, just such a strong champion, just such an older brother. Don't you desert him, for you have no one else like him. Thanks so much, John. John, how can our walk with Christ help us even when we're facing death? Yeah, and of course, even if you, my listener, are not facing death at this moment, the day will come when both you and I will face our own death. There's no way around that except for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, We have to come to terms with this, that Jesus crushed the power of death by dying and rising from the dead, and our life is united with him. So continue to meditate on that, believe that, ask the Holy Spirit to secure that in your own heart. And that's the only way that you can successfully face death. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more, your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly 
at 1-866-336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy.